Welcome to this podcast from the Journal of Medical Ethics, or JME. I'm Harriet Vickers, Multimedia Editor for BMJ Journals. Today we're talking about how assistive reproductive technologies, such as IVF, are contributing to climate change, and what, if anything, should be done about it. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Christina Ritchie, who's an adjunct professor in the Boston area and is currently working on a PhD. So good afternoon, Christina. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. To kick us off, could you give us um, your the basis of your argument in a, in a nutshell? How would you summarize it? So my basic concern is the state of the environment and environmental degradation. And within that, uh, the effects of the medical industry and the offerings of the medical industry on the environment. So specifically, I'm concerned with providing free reproductive technologies, which not only increases population, it also increases resource consumption through the birth of new children. So I'm suggesting in this article that due to the immense problems that we have with the environment, a logical solution would be in light of environmental sustainability to put certain limitations on government-funded reproductive technologies, either through carbon caps or through rewriting reproductive policies so that they are not provided to people who are already fertile. And why have you singled out these reproductive technologies to, to put those the carbon caps on and, and to, to regulate in terms of, um, of carbon emissions and climate change. Why have you singled those out rather than looking across increasing the population in general? Reproductive technologies are unique in that they're typically given in places with enormously large carbon footprints. So as you probably know, a carbon footprint is the amount of CO2, carbon dioxide emissions, that one person emits in their life. And when there are people living in a country, that country also has a carbon footprint. So reproductive technologies, since they're mostly given in developed countries, um, especially places like the United States, which has the second largest carbon footprint out of all countries in the world, there's really an exponential increase in carbon emissions because of the children born just by country of locale. So the concern over reproductive technologies as contributing to either population growth is not new. That's always been a concern, especially when there are children waiting to be adopted or children that get born that aren't really taken care of. Um, I'm especially concerned now with not just focusing on population growth because that often can place the blame on developing countries who don't have the economic and um, gender justice policies in place to sustain a really just reproductive system. But I'm really concerned with the amount of resources that are being used in these countries, which come from people. And one way that I think this can be targeted is through government provision of reproductive technologies, thus making it a policy issue instead of just looking at natural reproduction. Although, of course, that is how the majority of births come about. And has that been quantified in any way, the the, the carbon emissions from uh, reproductive technologies? I mean, I guess you have the, the footprint of the these clinics themselves, but then you also have the, um, I think you term it, uh, the legacy carbon mm-hmm. emissions of the, the people that they produce. So do we have any numbers that um, show us what the, the carbon emission of those two aspects is? Sure. So... Um 
this is very complicated because it varies not only by person to person and country to country, but also the kind of lifestyle you live. Um, so, for instance, in the United States, the average carbon footprint is uh, 20 metric tons per person per year. And if you choose to have a biological child, that goes towards your carbon legacy. So that, you know, will increase your carbon legacy about five times. Everyone has a carbon footprint, but some people choose not to have a carbon legacy by not having biological children. So the exponential effects of the carbon legacy really expand when not only there's children being born, but then they have children and they have children and so on. Um, in contrast, some countries that have lower carbon footprints, like in China, the average footprint is only about five metric tons per person. But because there's so many people, they're the number one producer of carbon in the world at um, 6,534 million metric tons of CO2. Um, but I really want to stress that it's not just about one person and one carbon legacy in a particular country, that as a world we're grappling with climate change and our carbon emissions don't stay locked into our country. They spread out throughout the world. And so this really needs to be a corporate global endeavor to reduce carbon footprints. Okay, so we, we've got the tits that more people are very expensive in, in terms of carbon emissions and that particularly people in the countries where assisted reproductive technology is, is in use and in fact widespread, that um, the, the carbon footprint and legacy of each person is actually more than in those countries that don't use these technologies. But what what's the moral argument for singling out people who need these technologies to have kids as opposed to those who have kids naturally? Well, this is a very interesting question and there's two parts to it. So the first part is asking how are reproductive technologies different than any other medical offering? So initially reproductive technologies like in vitro were established to help couples who are infertile have a biological child. Um, and instead of doing something like repairing block tubes, it would bypass the infertility with the idea, of course, of having a child. So there's two things here. You can have a child without using reproductive technologies, and that's going to increase carbon emissions. My concern with this paper, though, is that there are certain groups of people who are actually fertile that are using reproductive technologies, and it's being given to them for free. So, for instance, people who already have children who maybe have chosen to become sterile through a vasectomy or a ligation, they can use reproductive technologies as defined um, under certain United States policies. Another issue is fertile women who choose not to have partners and fertile women in same-sex couples. So again, the issue is not that they are infertile and that they need to use reproductive technologies to treat their disease. The issue is a lifestyle choice. And because the government is providing it, the government can also draw the line on what not to provide for. At the same time, these people could still become pregnant, they could still pay for reproductive technologies out of pocket, they could become a parent through adoption or another green means of parenting. And so I'm not trying to target certain groups of people and say that they shouldn't become parents or even that they shouldn't become biological parents, but rather say in the face of fertility, using fertility treatments is a lifestyle choice that the government 
doesn't need to pay for. And in doing so, hopefully that will attenuate the amount of carbon emissions, not only of the medical industry, but also of individuals who might choose a greener route of parenting, such as adoption. Okay, I, I guess we do get into to problems with, some people could see that as discrimination against uh, people in, in same-sex couples who would argue that it's it's not a lifestyle choice that they're in love with someone else of the same sex. So how would you answer that? Well, there's a difference between preventing someone from becoming a parent, which of course I would not advocate, and saying that in this case that the government shouldn't provide a reproductive technology. So I'm not suggesting that same-sex couples and single women should not be parents, and I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be able to adopt. In fact, I think adoption would be an excellent choice for all couples. But the point is rather that if reproductive technologies are a medical offering to address a medical condition, then we can see why they would want to be offered under health insurance, as you would say, insulin treatments for type 1 diabetes or a heart transplant or something like that. But in the case that reproductive technologies are being used as a lifestyle choice, then the government, the medical industry, and society needs to ask what kinds of reproduction are we willing to fund in terms of a lifestyle choice? So, for instance, would we say that if single men and men in same-sex couples want to have kids and that the government, because they believe in reproductive freedom, would want to fund that, then would the government be obligated to provide a surrogate woman for a single man or a man in same-sex couples? And what if there weren't enough women who were willing to become surrogates? Would they have to be forced to be surrogates? We might also ask if um, fertile couples would want to use reproductive technologies for things that are not related to infertility, such as sex selection, gender balancing, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and the selection for or against certain disabilities. So in some cases, couples who are deaf have chosen to use PGD in order to have deaf children. And if we as a society in the medical industry want to say in vitro and reproductive technologies are more for just the remedy of infertility, they are in fact so that any parent can construct any child that they want in any way they see fit, then we're going to be hard pressed not to make it not to make surrogates available to single men who want to have kids without a partner and not to make PGD and sex selection available to any couple for whatever reason that they want. And what about the the practicalities of you know, re- reducing the, the carbon impact of these technologies? We talked about who should have access to it. But are there any other models that have been used in um, other industries? You mentioned carbon caps. How could these be applied to um, assisted reproductive technologies? Carbon caps are a very hotly contested issue right now, but there are several different ways that companies and organizations can either invest in a carbon capping scheme or voluntarily join. So carbon caps can be done on an individual level and a sector-by-sector level and a national level and on a world level. One of the ways that the reproductive technologies industry could become more sustainable would either be through joining a voluntarily carbon capping program, um, which would be the case in the United States where reproductive technologies are not regulated and we don't have any emissions policies in place. Another way would be when entire sectors work to reduce their total emissions. So in 2009, the National Health Services 
looked at how much carbon emissions they were producing, and it turns out that a quarter of England public sector emissions came from the NHS and those health services. So if, for instance, England wanted to reduce carbon emissions, they could go sector by sector, and the reproductive technologies subsumed under NHS could reduce carbon emissions in that way. And then a third way would be for an entire country to become accountable for carbon emissions, which would include individual carbon footprint and different various um, issues of commerce and their footprint. And it's contested which would be the best. I'm not so concerned with promoting a certain way of carbon caps, but I think the important thing is that we do try to make strides to reduce our carbon input, our carbon output, and put caps on carbon emissions immediately. And are there any other policies that you'd like to to see in place? Well, again, the policy of um, not providing reproductive technologies that are funded to people who are fertile would be a great step forward. I think that would reduce the number of uh, reproductive technologies that are given. Um, In the top five countries where there is a high percentage of babies that are born through reproductive technologies, two of those countries have free reproductive technologies. So in Israel, it's about 4% of all births and reproductive technologies, they are completely free to citizens. So you can really see that people, they don't have to pay for it, they are going to go for it. But in addition to that, I would really like to attend to the issues that make people seek reproductive technologies, which is the desire for children. So I think that making adoption a lot easier needs to be an option, as well as promoting child-free lifestyles for those who choose to be child-free. Do you have any further practical steps in actually you know, going forward and convincing policymakers and uh, the NHS or the healthcare services to to take this on board and, and make some steps towards it? It's very challenging, but we're really at a crisis point in the um, environment where we need to make decisive steps quickly. So in the United States, where health insurance is different state by state, taking a look at policies and tightening up loopholes needs to be attended to, specifically including things like people who have children should not be eligible for government-funded reproductive technology since they already have children. Um, If we do want to continue with reproductive technologies, it needs to become regulated in some way. And so reproductive technologies need to be allocated with concern for our environment and a sober consideration for the implications of climate change. I think that carbon capping and a rewriting of policies will be one step towards that. Well, it's um, it's a very interesting paper and argument, and and there's plenty more in the paper in the journal if if listeners want to to go away and 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 read it in full. And Christina, thanks very much for coming on and talking us through it. Thank you very much for having me.